The book of 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's second letter to the believers in Corinth who were being influenced by false teachers proclaiming a different gospel. As a physician cleans and bandages a wound, Paul addresses the contamination of the Corinthians' hearts and applies the healing balm of the gospel. Paul uses their real-life situations to apply gospel truths in real time. The gospel is worked into our hearts, causing us to recognize its deep implications in every dimension of life. We can trust that the Holy Spirit is working to transform our hearts, unmasking our own cultural idols, and recentering our lives around the promises of God. 2 Corinthians. Well, I hope you have your Bibles open at 2 Corinthians. And um, we're going to start with an introduction and then the first uh, 11 verses uh, of the, the, um, of the letter. Uh, I've called the sermon this morning, The Discipline of Difficulties, and you'll know why. I even thought of maybe telling you some of the difficulties I've already had this morning, <laughs> but uh, I haven't got time, and anyhow, you don't really care, but uh, <laughs> we've already studied 1 Corinthians, and in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, which we finished last week, we uh, did an introduction. So I'm going to do a little bit different type of introduction, but still to help anyone who doesn't really understand how Paul got there and all that kind of thing by doing a, a, a totally different introduction. So Corinth had been destroyed completely in 146 B.C. by the Romans and uh, had remained uninhabited for 100 years when Julius Caesar rebuilt it. Paul visited Corinth in A.D. 49 or 50, and it was at that time 80 years old with a population of just over 80,000 people. Corinth had become the third most important city in the Roman Empire because of its harbor. It was a passage for the known world and a very prosperous city. So I'm going to turn now to Acts chapter 18. It'll be on the screen, or you can turn to it yourself. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation just to show you how Paul got there. So Paul's in one of his missionary journeys. Uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 1, it reads, Then Paul left Athens. Remember the Areopagus where he saw the unknown God and he did a great sermon there about the resurrection of Jesus? So then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Uh, there he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Now, we met uh, Aquila and Priscilla in the sermon last week in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. So uh, they, were, they went to Corinth. It was a large Jewish population. So Paul lived and worked with Aquila and Priscilla, uh, uh, for they were tent makers, just as he was. That's how he actually earned his living. Each Sabbath, that was a Saturday, the Jewish Saturday, found Paul uh, on the Jewish Sabbath at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. They would be the believing Greeks and uh, the Jews and Paul would have been known to have been a, a really well-known Pharisee, so he was teaching there. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all his time preaching 
the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. He would do that by proving from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled all kinds of prophecies. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, your blood is upon your own heads and I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to preach to the Gentiles. Now, we know that when Paul was on the Damascus Road and he was struck blind and he met Jesus and all that, that he was told that he was going to be uh, the apostle to the Gentiles, and this shows us how he got to that point. And then he left and went to the home of Titus Justus, a Gentile who worshiped God, he would have been a believer, and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, this is really quite amazing, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, do not be afraid, Paul. Speak out, don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you, for many people in the city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half, teaching the word of God. So that's how we got there. Now, Rome at this point in time was overpopulated. So many people left Rome and moved to Corinth uh, seeking a better life. Corinth became a place to make your own way no matter what your background. The goal of most in Corinth was upward mobility, the Corinthian dream. One writer puts it this way, the ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual, the merchant who made his gain by all and every means, the man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust, the athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength are the true Corinthian types in a in a, uh, in a word, the, the man, uh, in a word, the man who recognized no superior, no law, but his own desires. In other words, it was I did it my own way type of place. Corinth was also a sports and entertainment center. Caesar reinstated the Isthmian Games in Corinth, second only to the Olympics. Paul's message did not meld well with the your best life now attitude, even in the church in Corinth. Paul's relationship with those in the church became very difficult. But with Timothy and Aquila and Priscilla and Silas, Paul built a remarkable church based on the message of the cross. Paul left after 18 months and traveled to Ephesus, where he wrote the letter we just studied over the last six or seven months, 1 Corinthians. Paul planned a return to gather the collection for the Jerusalem church, and we did that in detail last week, uh, and, but he had sent Timothy ahead, and Timothy discovered some very disturbing problems in the church. So Paul quickly changed his plans and returned to Corinth. When we get to chapter 2 in 2 Corinthians, we will uh, read of Paul's painful visit. Uh, some in the church were accusing Paul of not being a real apostle, 
they suggested that the fact that Paul seems to have suffered so much proved God was not in charge of his life. They accused him of being a very dull preacher, along with many other disturbing accusations. Tragically, this attack on Paul's ministry in person had led many of his Corinthian converts to reject him and his preaching for what Paul called a different gospel. We'll learn about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, but I'll read you at least one verse from it. Paul is pretty upset uh, in what he's writing to them, and he says this. For if someone comes to you, these are people he loved, he led to the Lord, he taught. If someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach, we being the apostles, and Paul included, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. He was really upset. A matter of fact, it was more than upset. Paul was devastated. He was deeply wounded emotionally and spiritually. It actually caused Paul to write a very severe letter full of his emotion and send it back to the church. And we don't have that letter, but we'll learn about it in our study. 2 Corinthians is the most emotional of all of Paul's writings. It's a picture of injured love. Kent Hughes writes at the end of his introduction to 2 Corinthians these words, if you have ever invested your life in that of another so that one turns to Christ, perhaps a child or a friend or a co-worker or a relative, and then have had others lead that one astray, 2 Corinthians is for you. This book is about the nature of the gospel and authentic ministry. Those who really care about the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and the care of souls will find 2 Corinthians captivating. So let's take a look at some of the verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, obviously that's who wrote it, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God, that's important, in Corinth, together with all his holy people, that's the word for saints in the Greek language, for his saints, for his holy people, throughout Achaia, that's part of Greece, so that's who he's written it to, and then he, it's, this is like a prayer, grace and peace. Now, let's talk about this a little bit. There's different kinds of grace. There's saving grace, but he's writing to people who uh, he's writing to people who he's thinking of as saved. But there's also sustaining grace. We don't deserve either, and we can't do without either. We can't become a Christian without God's grace. But then, once we become a Christian, we continually need the grace of God to be able to endure day after day, week after week, year after year, until we meet Jesus uh, in person. And then it's the same with the word peace. There's two different kinds of peace. There's the peace that passes all understanding, but there's also the peace of God that we're no longer enemies of God. So this is like a prayer. Sustaining grace and peace 
to you from God, our Father, and the Lord, Jesus Christ. Uh, one commentator that I really like uh, does all of his own translation work, so he doesn't use any known translation. And every time he, he sees Lord Jesus or anything like it, he calls him King Jesus. We're in the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Christ in our lives, and Jesus is the king. So that's not too bad a translation. And so he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and King Jesus, who is the Messiah, because the word Christ is the Messiah. So the peace of God, the peace of God, is important for us to understand. The, first, the very first Old Testament verse I memorized when I became a Christian was Isaiah 26.3. And it says, different than my, the translation I used at the time, it says, uh, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you. That's talking about God, the you is God. All those whose thoughts are fixed on you, peace. And then, of course, there's Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Uh, do not be anxious about anything. Don't worry about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Paul saw God as his father, the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the father of King Jesus, who's the Messiah. He saw God as the ultimate source of his life. If we're going to handle difficulties, we need to really have the same kind of faith that Paul had in understanding and in reality. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, uh, Paul writes, But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace... Now, now let's stop and think of what he's saying. This is the Apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious terrorist. He was there when Stephen, the first martyr, was killed. He was happy about it. He cheered it on. And he's on the way to Damascus to put every Christian he can in jail or get rid of them totally. He hated Christians. But yet now he's writing. And he's saying that, but when God, who set me apart from birth, he's actually saying, even before I was actually born, just right at birth, God's the one that gave me a purpose for life that I didn't even realize at that time. He called me back then. He knew me even before I was born. We see that all through the Old Testament scripture. And he called me by his grace. This grace is the grace that, uh, of salvation. Uh, it's undeserved. Now, nobody could be more undeserved of God's salvation than the apostle Paul was. And yet he was saved by grace which means that we didn't do anything to be saved. God saved us, and we received that salvation. And so he said, but when God who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son, that's Jesus, in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So just think about how he's thinking about God. Here's what's important about this. First, Paul never saw himself as a victim of circumstances or even of any other person. He never saw himself that way. He saw himself as one called of God and gifted for the task God had already planned for him from birth. That is how we all must see ourselves, all of us. Don't try to second-guess yourself all the time. 
Trust that God will use you right where you are, and if necessary, even cause a Damascus Road experience to move you somewhere else. I've discovered that if I do what I do with all my might, or to be more biblical, is onto the Lord, I will end up exactly where God wants me. That is what Paul meant when he wrote what has become an orphan verse in the Bible. An orphan verse. It's a verse that not very many people know because there's verses before it that everybody knows. And the orphan verse is Ephesians 2.10. We know verses 8 and 9, most of us by heart. For it is by grace, totally undeserved, you have been saved through faith, and this faith is not from yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not by works. You can't be, it's not because you're a good person or you, you, you went to school for a long time or uh, all of that type of stuff. It's not by works because if it was, you boast about it. And now here's the orphan verse. For or because we, now take this very personally, are God's workmanship. The word is, you, most of you know it, poema in the Greek language. It means what's where we get our word poem or poetry from. Uh, we are his perfect poem. We rhyme. <laughs> I mean, we are a, a, his masterpiece. So all of us are God's masterpiece. Every one of us created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, here's the important part which God prepared in advance even from birth for us to do. So it's true. God has a plan for our lives. We don't have to understand all of the details of that. We can talk about the philosophy of it and all that kind of stuff. He has a plan for my life. So I have nothing to worry about because he's God. He's the creator of the universe, and he's going to work that plan out in my life. Now, if God saved us by his power... And if we have assurance of that salvation by being filled with the Spirit, and we all know that when you become a Christian, you immediately receive the Holy Spirit of God. If that is true, then, question, can we not believe God will work through us right where we are? And if necessary, move us somewhere else without our worried and burdened help. So relax and allow God the Father to do his work. One person writes, in no other religion is God called Father with such a sense of intimacy and assurance as in the New Testament. One chapter in the Bible that has always amazed me is the last chapter of Romans. The list of names that Paul writes down is very long and importantly, tells us Paul was not a loner. He didn't try to live the Christian life by himself. He needed other people. He was saved by the Lord. He was filled with the Spirit. And he was given amazing gifts and loved the Scriptures, yet he needed other people. Even here, he mentions Timothy, whom Paul discipled, who was much younger than him and often traveled with. One of the greatest mistakes we make is to be loners who try to resolve all our problems by ourselves. Make sure, utmost importance, that you have a Timothy or two, plus we all need a Paul to call on when we don't know where to turn. Realize the Great Commission. Last thing Jesus said 
is to go into all the world and make disciples. We're to be disciple makers. All of us are to be disciple makers. And so we need to be working our lives that we have learned from others into others' lives. It's called disciple making. And we all need to be discipled. So we have a ministry for that. So you, you can go online, you can go to the, uh, uh, our community and look up Mark Kirby and say, uh, phone him up and say, Mark, I want to disciple someone. Or if you don't feel confident about that, you can say, I want someone to disciple me. But it's one of the greatest blessings you'll ever have. We all need to be discipling others. Now, let's go back to the introduction again. Here's where Paul wrote to. To the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints, all the holy people throughout Achaia, Greece. Now, notice it's the church of God. And no one church is ultimately independent of other churches. We talked about this last week. It really, it hurts me to see how separated we are as church bodies. It's good to have lots of local churches, but it's not good that we're not connected in any way with any other local churches. Paul needed the assurance of God's call. He sought the advice and friendships of others. He cherished the fellowship of the local church, even when the church, now think about this, even when the church had rejected him strongly, Paul is a model for us when it comes to how we are to live our Christian lives. The church gathered, the fellowship of the saints, the teaching of the scriptures, prayer, communion, worship, all essential if we're going to live the Christian life successfully. And the Bible calls us saints, saints. And that doesn't mean we're better than anybody else. It means that we're God's holy people, God's separated people. We have been set apart by God for his purposes. One writer defines us as, saints as, a dead sinner, revised and edited. And that is what we are. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul wrote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you become a Christian, you've repented of your sins, and you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you believe he rose from the dead, if anyone is in Christ, they are revised. They're a new creation, revised. The old is gone. Oh, you still have your old nature, but you don't have to give into it anymore. You have the power not to. And the new has come because you're filled with the Spirit, so you're edited. So for 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are revised and edited. We have been changed by God. And then look at the prayer again, verse 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord, King Jesus, who's the Christ, the Messiah, the Father of compassion, that's an important word, and the God of all comfort. Comfort or some form of it is used 10 times in these verses we're going to look at. Comfort. Who comforts us in all our troubles. How much of our troubles? All our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Have you ever really thought about this verse? Paul wrote more about suffering 
than any other writer of the New Testament. Some in the Corinthian church were saying that if Paul was really an apostle, he wouldn't be suffering so much. Life would be better for him, not full of the troubles that characterize his life. But Paul's about to tell them suffering is, in fact, proof that he's authentic. And further, Paul lets them know that suffering is a good thing. A good thing? That's what he says. The word for comfort Paul is using is the word for the Holy Spirit. Paraclete is the Greek word. It means comforter. Uh, a good paraphrase of the word is, it means one who gives courage. And in our day, the word comfort has the idea of some kind of emotional relief or sense of well-being. We think of physical ease and satisfaction. Our idea of comfort is free from pain and anxiety. Someone has said, many in our culture worship at the cult of comfort in a self-centered search for ease. The problem with that kind of comfort is that it's only temporary. The word comfort originally had as part of its meaning the idea of being brave, of being strong, of being courageous. To be comforted was to be given the assurance that even in danger or difficulty, we would be strengthened to face the troubles of life with resolve and biblical perseverance. Almost everybody here that's been a Christian for any length of time uh, knows 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Uh, sometimes Valerie and I'll be in the house and something will be happening and I'll just say 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Or she'll say 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and I'll say, oh, don't give me that. But 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is important. The temptations in your life are no different, it says, from what others experience. So nothing's happening to you that somebody else hasn't had it happen to them. And God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, any kind of temptation comes to your life, he will show you a way out so that you can endure it, meaning you can stick in there and not give up, or you can pass through it. Paul is writing about all suffering, but notably the suffering of those who are living a godly life among the saints before the world. That's why in his last letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, uh, he wrote these words in 2 Timothy 3.12. Uh, I call Timothy at this point in his life, Pastor Timothy. And he says, Pastor Timothy, in fact, Tell your congregation that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In this life, you'll have troubles. Jesus said that. In this life, you'll have troubles. But take heart, I've overcome the world. We might ask why God allows suffering. I've read whole books on that subject. Clearly, Paul believed that suffering deepens our faith. Elizabeth Elliot wrote a book called A Path Through Suffering. Um, if you don't know who Elizabeth Elliot is, her husband, uh, she and her husband and some others went to the Aka Indians. It's a well-known story by many. Uh, they made movies of it and uh, to reach these Aka Indians, and they, they murdered her husband. And... Uh, make a very wonderful long story very short, uh, because after they murdered her husband, it wasn't just her husband, some of the other men too, uh, she, with the new baby that she had, went and lived with them, and they all became Christians. 
So she writes this, she, she really writes stuff about suffering that's wonderful to read, but here's what she says. Why do I need the word of anyone but God himself? He has told me again and again and again that he is with me and will always be with me in the deep river, the hot fire, the valley of the shadow. That's Psalm 23, the valley of the shadow of death. Thou art with me, thou will... Oh, forget it. I just loved it. I think about it all the time. Yet I sometimes doubt him, she says. So in his mercy, he brings along witness after witness. People who have learned dimensions of transforming grace impossible for them to have learned anywhere but where they were. You see, Paul is a witness for us. But the church is full of witnesses. The worldwide church and the local church. I recently received a message just a week or so ago I, uh, about uh, the sudden death of a loved one. I was at the memorial service yesterday. I contacted that person. Uh, but then I phoned another man in our church who had had the exact same experience in the past in the way that everything happened. And he was able to say, I know how you feel. And he did know and was a comfort to her. And he was there yesterday too. There's all kinds. Even in this one service right here, you probably couldn't mention a tremendous difficulty that somebody here hasn't gone through. That's why it's so important we build relationships in the local church and get to know the people and, uh, so that, that we can comfort one another. And we're going to learn more about that in a minute. Um, listen to this. Suffering is like pruning for a Christian. Pruning means cutting, reshaping, and removing what diminishes vitality. When we look at a pruned vineyard, we can hardly believe it will bear fruit. But when harvest time comes, we realize that the pruning enabled the vine to concentrate its energy and produce more grapes than it could have had it remained unpruned. Grateful people are those who can celebrate even the pains of life because they trust that when harvest time comes, the fruit will show that the pruning was not punishment, but purification. That's quite a statement. God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. Right now, I'm dealing with someone who's going through a terrible trial that I went through almost 25 years ago. It's exactly the same. It's strange for me, in some ways, to be talking about it to this person and this family. For them, they're devastated, but hopeful. And part of the reason they're hopeful, they're, I'm not the only one, but that I was able to meet and say, yes, I, know I really know how you feel. And this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And that gives them encouragement. There is... No person more miserable than the person who suffers alone, who allows suffering to cut them off from God's people. We must not waste our suffering. We must use our suffering to reach out to others. 
So let's read those verses again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord, King Jesus, the Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in how many of our troubles? All our troubles. Who comforts us in all our troubles? Why does he do that? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So Paul learned that God always gives more comfort than needed so that it can overflow our lives into the lives of others. And now look at verse 5 and 6. Verse 5, for just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, it almost sounds like, isn't this great? We, for just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. So also our comfort abounds through Christ and if we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces a new patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. So we're to trust God in the midst of our suffering because we are able to wait on God. We can do that for the solution of our troubles because suffering produces hope, eternal hope, in God, and we can't live without hope. You need to sign up for the conference in January because we'll really learn about it from that incredible man that's coming to teach us. Romans chapter 5, the word, the pen of Paul, verse 2. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. True. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. I can clearly remember the first time I went through Romans and I'm studying in my study and I said, you got to be kidding. We rejoice in our sufferings. The first time I taught through Romans, I was going through a terrible time. I wasn't rejoicing. So we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know, we know that suffering produces perseverance. That's my favorite Greek word. What is it? Who knows it? Hupomone. My favorite Greek word. Hupomone. So suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Now look at verse 7. And our hope for you is firm. Paul's writing to that church in Corinth, but he's writing to the church in Sarasota too. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. William Barclay has some wisdom here. The answer to this suffering lies in endurance. The keynote of endurance is not grim, bleak acceptance of trouble, but triumph. It describes the spirit which can not only accept suffering, but triumph over it. Someone once said to a sufferer, suffering colors life, doesn't it? As the silver comes purer from the fire, so the Christian can emerge finer and stronger from hard days. The Christian is the athlete of God whose spiritual muscles become stronger from the discipline of difficulties. That's where I got the title. I was inspired by that. The discipline of difficulties. Learning to accept life as it is and knowing that God will always encourage us, comfort us, enable us 
To live with a sense of purpose and joy is of utmost importance. This illustration from D.A. Carson really impacted me, and I've used it before. How we handle the suffering of testing and discipline depends not a little on what we focus on. On a trip to Australia, I met an Anglican bishop who had been mightily used in evangelism and church planning in three African nations. He was sometimes referred to as the apostle to Tanzania. After he retired from his missionary work in Africa, he set up seminary in the United States. But when I met him, his suffering from Parkinson's disease was so advanced that he could no longer talk. He could communicate just barely by printing out block letters in a wavering hand that was almost indecipherable. He often had to draw a word three or four times for me to understand him. We talked about a number of matters close to his heart. At least I did the talking and tried to ask most of my questions in a form where he could signal merely yes or no. In the short time I spent with him, I sensed a man of unshaken faith. And so I had the audacity to ask him how he was coping with his illness. After decades of immensely productive activity, how was he dealing with his own suffering, with the temptation to feel he was now useless and fruitless? He penned his answer twice before I could make it out. And here's what he wrote. There is no future in frustration. I would say with the Apostle Paul, the bishop understood one of the most important statements in 2 Corinthians. We'll get to it at the end of 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, where Paul writes, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, Paul says, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. <laughs> Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of me. He said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. And then he says, rejoice and be glad, for greater is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And he knew about suffering. Huh. Now look at verse 8 and 9. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The J.B. Phillips version reads, We were completely overwhelmed. The burden was more than we could bear. In fact, we told ourselves that this was the end. We had this experience of coming to the end of our tether that we might learn to trust not in ourselves, but in God who can raise the dead. Now, we don't know what the trouble was for sure he's talking about, but it was pretty severe, obviously. God wants to deliver us of all self-confidence so we can completely trust in him. That's what he wants to do. 
The Corinthian church had become a pleasure-seeking church, peace at any cost. Many people live their lives that way. What a shallow way to live. The word amusement suggests function without thought, looking for meaning without thinking. God's desire is to bring us to the point where we trust only in him. The result of such trust, the peace that passes all understanding. In the last two verses, and we're done. Verse 10. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, Paul says, and he'll deliver us again. On him we have set our hope, and he will continue to deliver us. As you help us, now that's an important word, as you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. The Greek word for help us could be translated helping together, and it's only used here in the New Testament, and it's a picture of people working hard together in prayer. Individual prayer is important, but corporate prayer is also important. Prayer is both hard work and a privilege. So if you're part of this church, as this is where your commitment is, make sure, make sure you are part of our prayer wall in the community. Sign up in the community if you haven't already done it, and go to the prayer wall so you get all of the prayer requests that come. The prayer wall does more to keep me humble than anything else in my day-to-day life. It's amazing reading and then praying for these prayers. One of God's primary goals for our lives is to bring us to the point where we truly depend upon God and others more than ourselves. With God's help, in the next few months, we'll come to a much fuller understanding of what it means to be strong in weakness by the power of the cross. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the help that the Apostle Paul gives all of us. We all need help of others. But I also thank you, Father, especially as I read the prayer requests and I see the, re- the way people reach out in this church to others that are going through sometimes just terrible problems. I can see, Father, how wise your ways are and how important it is that we're one another people, that we do all we can to be an encouragement by using our gifts, our abilities, our encouragement, and our troubles and trials and the comfort we received in them. It's so important that we let those overflow into others, but we can't have them overflow if we don't know others. <laughs> and so, Father, the, the church is our real family. Help us to live as good family members, reaching out to as many as we can in the family and as many as we can outside the family who need to know the Lord. So, Father, I thank you for this church. I am so thankful to be part of this fellowship of believers. So help us to continue to follow you. And if there's anyone here this morning or watching online and you don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, I beg of you, I urge you, to just pray and say, God, I want to know this Jesus the way that Apostle Paul does, the way that those people in that church do. Please change my life, and he will. He'll come into your life. You don't have to have any great words or know any particular theology. Just believe Jesus is God, and that he rose from the dead, and that you're a sinner, and you need a Savior, and then he'll save you. It's all his, all his work. You just have to receive it. In Jesus' name.